Is she working any harder? No. Is she improving her financial condition? Yes. Does she have more protection that she didn't have before? Yes. All things improved in her life by making one decision differently. She thought she had no money. She wasn't looking at the money the right way. So just because you don't think you have any money doesn't mean that's true. Welcome to Building Wealth Through Real Estate, the ultimate interview style podcast for real estate investors. Learn from our experienced guests as they share their successes and their failures and uncover new strategies to grow your wealth. With a focus on Canadian real estate, we cut through the noise and bring you relevant information that you can act on. So don't miss out on this opportunity to connect with like-minded investors and elevate your game. Leave your questions in the comments below and join us on a journey to building wealth through real estate. Joining us today is Mr. Richard Canfield. Richard, can you share with us your background, how you got started in real estate investing as well as infinite banking and your journey to this point? I'm not sure how far back you want to go, but I guess I'll, uh, I'll take it back a little way. So I'm originally from the Edmonton area, actually Camrose, Alberta. I'm sure many of your viewers are aware of different little Alberta, small towns. And I grew up actually in a service business. My family owned and operated a company where we had uh, portable toilets and my dad cleaned septic tanks. So I was the heir to the portable toilet kingdom of Camrose, Alberta is what I used to tell people, a prince to the throne, as it were. When you're in that kind of industry, you got to make jokes about everything. Otherwise, you're not going to be very happy. But anyway, so I, we, we had that business and I grew up on a, in a farming community out on an acreage, working hard. That was all I ever really knew and understood. And it was probably about when I was 12 years old, my mom really wanted to get into investment real estate. So we, she used to take the Canada child benefit or the precursor to that, what it used to be known. And she actually set it aside intentionally and invested it for myself and my siblings. And she invested into mutual funds, which she knew at that time, and she built it up. And in, in her mind, she had compartmentalized that money as ours, if that makes sense. Even though it was there to help the family be able to put food on the table, that sort of thing. She was very intentional about the idea of paying yourself first. She did that and she invested that money, which is really cool. It's amazing. You know, shout out to mom. She's fantastic, honestly. So when it came time to invest in real estate, that's where some of the money was going to come from. So I remember we sat around the kitchen table and we had a conversation and I was about maybe just turning her about 12 years old that we were going to take this money and we were going to put it towards buying an investment property in Camrose. And I remember being a little bit hesitant at that point because I was very much a saver, very big saver. I was known as the bank in my family. If someone needed cash for the weekend or something, they would come to me and I would get them to write out an IOU and I would have that. And I would go and collect money from people when they didn't pay me back. So I didn't understand interest at that age of life, but I understood tracking the money and whatever. And so we decided to go forward this property. I was against it at the time. It seemed like it was going to be a lot of work. And I was very standoffish and hesitant. And the reality is we owned that property we purchased. It was an up-down suited property for about six or seven years. And this is early on. This is in the early mid-90s. We sold it, I think, in 1999. And at that point in time, it was just before the Alberta boom started to kick off in the early 2000s. So it was a little early. <laughs> so we, our timing wasn't great. And then also... Yeah. What I learned in that entire time frame is that real estate was a lot of work and we didn't have coaching. We didn't have mentorship. There were no podcasts. There wasn't good training. There wasn't good coaching. There wasn't real estate investment 
groups and networks available. We didn't have any of that support. And so it was all just us trying to figure it out on our own. And the reality of that is I would go get off a bus from school and then get in a vehicle, put on work clothes, and I would go into town and I would paint. I would do drywall repairs, move appliances. Uh, there was a dog named Goliath that one of the tenants had. If you're picturing the biggest dog known to man, that is what exactly what it was. And it tore up the yard. It was like it was digging all the way to China. I had to single-handedly reclaim the entire yard from what this dog did. I shingled my first roof there. At one point, we had some guys in the basement that were playing floor hockey, and they body-checked each other through a few walls. So I've got a few tenant stories, if that makes any sense. And yeah. we had a lot of experiences in a short, compressed time frame. And so what I got out of that and what I realized is like this real estate game kind of sucks. There's a lot of frustration that's involved here. I associated it with actually a lot of negative emotion and energy because of all the work that was involved. The reality is all of that could have been resolved with good coaching, good information, and understanding some systems. We just didn't have those things. And we were also running our business. So we're just running ragged. We didn't have to have the time available. So that was my first foray into real estate. Now we sold that property. My, my parents, we each received our appropriate amount back. And I told them flat out, I'm never doing this again. Literally three months later, I was putting an offer on with my parents on another property, which was in downtown Edmonton. And it was a, I think it was a third or fourth floor unit. And it was a condo conversion property where it was everything was going to be in a rental pool, 100% self-managed. And I remember being at the sales presentation. It was like one of those dinner evening things. And it, they were talking about the idea of a virtual apartment building, which is a really cool idea. And I remember grilling this sales guy. And I was like, I was barely 18 at this point. I'm grilling this guy. And I said, you mean to tell me I never need to see a tenant? I never need to move an appliance. I never need to solve, deal with Goliath, the dog. And I grilled him with all these questions. And the answers came out good. And so we decided to proceed. So my parents and I moved forward with another property, even though I said I was never going to do it again. And then we sold that property about three years later and I got my first $15,000 check. And I thought, okay, now I realize there's something to this. My, my mindset had shifted and changed along that line and I realized there was more to it. And so then I started to delve deeper and deeper into the real estate realm. I became involved in a lot of membership groups and I made a lot of amazing connections and I just really started to get enthralled with real estate. Now I've had rocky experience in real estate. I've had goods. We've all experienced some great wins. And I'm sure that any real estate investor who's had more than a couple properties can tell you a bunch of horror stories. So it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And I think that if we tell people that it's sunshine and rainbows, we're misleading them to some degree. They need to, you need to understand the bad stuff and the negative stuff that can happen and does so that when it shows up, eventually it will, you're armed with the right knowledge and information to be able to deal with it to some degree, if that makes any sense. That's one thing that I try and highlight on the show with the guests that we have is that they share their successes as well as their failures and their losses so that people are able to prepare themselves, put systems in place, educate themselves and have that expectation going into it. So I, I think that was a great background on it all, as well as some useful tips just within your introduction. So I'm loving the start so far. Now tell me what led you to integrate infinite banking with real estate? Want to succeed in real estate investing? Focus on networking and building a strong power team. As an investor-focused realtor in Edmonton, I can connect you with local events and experts. Plus, keep you in the loop with exclusive deals. Contact me below to start growing your network and your net worth today. Let's get back to it. 
Yeah. So after that foray and that second property, it was a year later that we bought the next property. And then not long after that, I was probably another year later, I was buying another one just for myself with the intention of living in it for about a year and then moving on to another one. So I was trying to do that whole foray. And right at that time frame, there was a real boom starting to happen in Alberta. And I went and got my electrical, I started my electrical career. I became a journeyman electrician, I believe in, I don't know if it was 20, early, like January, 2022, sorry, 2002, early on, long time ago. And I kept in that career for a while. I had a lot of fun doing it. I met a lot of great people, but the reality is I knew it wasn't the right fit for me. It wasn't the thing I was meant to be doing. Shooting forward to February 6th of 2008 was my final day as an electrician. So at that point, I was working in Fort McMurray at one of the oil sands facilities, and I found myself doing little job site seminars with the people, the group of people that I was working with. They didn't understand how their RFPs work. They didn't understand the benefit that the company was giving them. They didn't know, they didn't understand what you could do in real estate. They didn't know about first and second mortgages, private lending. Like they just didn't know any of that stuff. And I had all this knowledge that I've been amassing. It's not that I knew it all. But I could clearly understand that because I was on a journey of exploration and learning and being very curious about the world and life and finance, that other people just weren't taking on that initiative. So I started bringing the initiative to them, if that made sense. So when you do that enough of those, you realize, yeah, I'm just in the wrong business. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> helping, helping major oil companies suck oil out of the ground and making sure that things are in operation isn't really a way to give back to the world and the community. And I'm not really adding a lot of value to other people. And I feel like I have more to give. There's more in me that I should be doing. So I transitioned from that point to getting my real estate license in, in Edmondson. And then I, I was a realtor for about nine years at Edmondson. I had a lot of fun doing that. The last couple of years, I barely did any of it though, because I had transitioned into another business. And I remember I was at a real estate event in Calgary, I believe it was in 2008, probably June, July, 2008. And I met somebody there through networking. And then that led to having a meeting with them about a software tool that helped rapidly eliminate debt and teach people how to do that really effectively. I ended up transitioning into a business that helped me do that with people. And then that environment led me to discovering and, and meeting an individual who taught me about this book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And this book, Becoming Your Own Banker by, by R. Nelson Nash, I finally ordered and read this book after learning about it in 2009. It was summer of 2009. And once I read the book, Elrage, it just changed everything for me. I, you ever had this experience where you learn something that you just had no idea existed and it hits you like a two by four in the face? You ever seen the movie Tommy Boy where he's like, it doesn't so much hurt here or here, but right here, he's got like the red two by four mark all over his face. That's the feeling that I had when I read this book. And the result of that is I actually got pissed off. I got really irritable. And I remember I was... <laughs> I would be in social environments or whatever. And I found that I was like a little, like I had a chip on my shoulder. I was a little bit nippy with people because for something in the back of my head had me angry that here we are in 2009. And if I shoot back and look at the entire decade previous, I had spent close to $45,000 on my personal and financial education at that point over a decade. That meant real estate events, week-long courses, personal development courses, hip hopping all over Canada and various places in the United States to attend all these events, to build up my knowledge and my experience and my contact base so that I could make it big in real estate. And all the real estate gurus and all the people that I'd met, not a single one of them had told me the information in 92 pages. I got a better financial education in 92 pages than for the 45 grand I'd spent in a decade of my life. 
I was pissed off. And I think rightfully so. So that had an impact on me. And I realized once you know something, it's very difficult to unknow it. You have to actually make a conscious choice to hide that information in your world and your life and try to like put it to the wayside. And I couldn't operate in, I could not be in integrity in my life if I didn't share the information in this book. I knew fundamentally this is what I had been looking for. When I left my electrical career and I transitioned into real estate, I knew at that time that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. But I knew it was a reasonable, natural transition for me because I figured I would be doing more things in real estate. And I liked to educate and to coach. And I thought that I would be able to add value to people's lives in the financial or in some way. I just didn't know how. When I read this book, I realized this is what I've been looking for. And it's fascinating to me. And I'll circle it back a little bit more. Going back to 1999, when we bought that second property, there was a different black book that I went and purchased. I went to a Kohl's or an Indigo, whatever it was at the time. And there was this black book that was all about amortization charts. It's literally just numbers. And you can flip through the book and you could pick an interest rate and a number, a debt amount, and you could isolate the payment and the stream and you could do it all with this manual book. It's weird to go and buy a book like that. It's not like nighttime reading. But I was fascinated by, I remember getting that second mortgage in the second property that we bought and reading through the mortgage document. And at the time, rates had just dropped and we bought that in 1999 and we were high-fiving and bumping chests because we got a mortgage at 6.97% for a 25-year amortization on this investment property. And we were just like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh my God, we won the lottery because the rates had dropped. Like, this is amazing. And now people are dealing with rates increasing and I'm like, what we're at is still better than what it was on my second property. So what I'm getting at is everything is relevant and time has an importance in our relevance. But looking back at buying this little mortgage amortization book and flipping through it, I was just fascinated at what the what the amount, the volume of interest, I didn't know it was volume at the time, but the physical dollars of every payment going to the bank and interest, I thought, this is a racket. Why am I trying to do the real estate when I want I just want to do what these guys are doing. I knew somehow in my brain, this is the business that we should be in. How do we get into this business? When I realized that you could use your registered like RSP, TFSAs, at the time TFSAs didn't exist, but registered capital to be able to lend on private mortgages. I did a number of those deals. I thought, that's it. I figured it out. This is how we can be the bank. So I figured I already knew it. I was wrong. That's not it. That is one way but it completely discounts the flow of money through your life as it runs through every aspect of your life. And when you understand the principles and the mindsets in this book of becoming your own banker, it completely is a paradigm shift to how you've been taught to utilize money and the way that you can use money over more than one lifespan. So when you start to think about money in beyond your own lifespan, your whole interaction with money can change. And I believe for the better. And that's part of the things I learned from the author of this book, who shooting forward years later became my mentor. And I loved him dearly. At the day that we're recording this, we're approaching the fourth anniversary of when he graduated, four years since he's been with us. And Nelson, who was an incredible man, he was 88 years old. He would say 88 revolutions around the sun. And when he passed away, he was still teaching this concept to people. He was phoning people from the hospital bed and checking in with them and making sure that they understood 
what needed to happen. He really was an enigma as a human being. And I learned more from him about the world, life, relationships, and money than any other single human being on planet Earth. I was surprised when I first found out about the concept of infinite banking. And I'm not even going to try and pretend like I fully grasp and understand it. But it also, I was like quite shocked at the way that I viewed the banking system and, and that this was actually something that could be done. So yeah, I was actually, I'm really excited to have you on the show just to, to help both myself and people out there just better understand how you can utilize this to benefit you in general, but also specifically with regards to your real estate investing journey. After discovering all of this, how do you, how would you say infinite banking helped your real estate investing? Yeah, I think, so what I'll reference that to is thinking about the understanding of how my life would be different if I'd learned about this when I started real estate investing versus coming at it a decade later. And when I think back on that, there's, we can't go back in time and we can't change the past. But what we can do is we can learn from the past. It's there to be a teacher to help coach us on future decision-making. I think that's how we need to look at the past and its value that it provides as we move forward. And in retrospect, if I had, for all the money I'd spent on renovations, kicking out tenants, dealing with vacancies, down payments, just a variety of other things that you do on the road of, of an investment life. If I had all that money and I had been able to flow that same amount of capital through the infinite banking process into another asset class, being the whole life insurance that we use to help create the engine. It's just the tool, just like real estate's a tool to help you create an outcome for your life that you want. Whole life insurance, when structured properly, is just a tool to help provide the means for which you can incorporate the mindset of infinite banking into your life. Had I flown that money through there, the amount of asset capital and value I would have available to me and my family would be dramatically different today. And one of the reasons for that, L. Ray, is this. Over the time frame of all of this transpiring, if I look back over a 20-year time frame, again, I've had some great wins and I've certainly had some losses. So I'll, I'll share another loss, not a loss, but a learning lesson opportunity for you and your listeners, if I may. I have a property today. This is a property, I believe we acquired it in 2002. I might be wrong on the math, but so I've had it for roughly 20 years. I've only ever seen this property one time in that time frame. It's in Fort McMurray. And as you probably know, Fort McMurray's had a bit of a two by four to the city, the proverbial city's face a number of times in the last couple of years. And so when we bought that property, I think the is a one bedroom unit in a basement level floor of an old four story walk up type complex. It's one of probably one of the oldest complexes in Fort McMurray. It's in downtown. Okay. And that was a condo conversion. It was done in a rental pool, et cetera. And so everything was good with that property for quite a while until it wasn't. When we purchased that property, it was probably maybe an $80,000 price point, something like that. At the peak of the market in Fort McMurray, we had it appraised and it appraised for, I believe, $225,000. So far, this sounds like a pretty good story. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'd built up some cash flow. We'd done some things. It was good. Of course, a lot of deferred maintenance happened over that time. And then quickly after that appraisal, the market shift. So the good news is we did do an equity takeout at that time. And we used that money to go do some other stuff. In fact, we pulled out more money than what the original purchase price was. Okay, so that sounds pretty good. 
However, shortly after, that's when the market shifted. Vacancies went up, oil price went in the tank, a whole number of factors happened, and it just never really recovered. Then you shoot forward, there's a big fire. A couple of years later, there's a giant flood. You, ha you still haven't had the economic climate recover, even though oil's back up. There's not enough investment happening in that community. So vacancy rates are very high in that community even today. And plus, we had to go through, and again, a lot of things just happen in time. In that community, getting people to do work on projects is very difficult because it's a community where people fly in and fly out. There's only some people that live there. So finding contractors to do work can be difficult. We did a whole bunch of work to the exterior and interior of these complexes, spent a boatload of the reserve money because you couldn't find people to do piecemeal work. And at the time we paid the peak pricing when you bid the jobs to get the contracts in. So we locked in peak pricing, but then the jobs got done over the next two years. So a lot of things just didn't work out timing wise. And you can't make this up. It's just a reality. And a lot of people got caught in that trap. So the end result is if I wanted to sell that property today, I would be amazed if I could get $40,000. Now, it gets better. So we had some management problems and that happens as well. And being that it was an armchair never really look at it type of a property. That was the whole purpose. The idea was it's a virtual apartment in a virtual apartment building. You get one here, you get one over there, you get one in Ontario, and you basically have the equivalent of this rental pool managed scenario. When I was, we saw the problems arising and I said, something's got to happen here. This isn't getting better. It's getting worse. We have negative cash flow position now. Everything seems to be going to tank. There's no sign of improvement. There has to be more that can be done. This can't just be all about the market. There's got to be something else going on. So I got on my soapbox. I went to land titles. I paid someone, a virtual assistant, to download. I bought, I don't know, 150 land titles. I put together a list. I wrote a letter. I put a one-page website together with a video. And I asked people to try and get me proxies so we could take over the condo board. <laughs> we did a hostile takeover of the condominium complex, basically. And that was the first time I saw the building. I actually had to go to Fort Murray to be a part of this meeting. And then we took over. We tried taking over the rental pool board as well. That transition was a little bit harder to do. So here we are about three, three and a half years later. And we've done massive improvements to bring this thing back online. But it is a slow slogging process. And we're still working through it. And we've made vast improvements. But it's been a tremendous amount of work. So the learning lesson here has been many. Real estate goes up and it goes down. You don't get to control the up and the down. There's a lot of things you can control, but a market's not one of them. Can't control the interest rates. You can't control the lending environment, which you can get capital. You can't control the flow of capital from investor money. You can't control when an investor needs their money back. You can't control selling a market in an environment where the market can't bear the sale of your property. Like, there's just a whole host of things that you can't control. So the learning experience is really high. I don't have any ill will or negativity. I haven't lost, really lost any money on this building because technically it's free for me at this point. But if I would have to hold it for another 10 years at the current negative cash flow before I would probably really start losing money. The reality is I might as well keep it. There's no reason to get rid of it at this point. We are making the necessary changes to bring it back online. But the learning experience has been so high. And my time, my cost of time, El Ray, the amount of time that I've spent on this condo project because I thought it was the right thing to do. The reality is, if I could have all of that time back, I could have vastly made more money than what I'm losing on the property by having my time back. So that's another learning opportunity. And it's time away from my family that I could be spending with them as well. So again, 
this is just one area of real estate where it hasn't particularly worked out the best for me, but the learning opportunity is very high and that can be conveyed to other people. These are just some of the things you need to be aware of. If you would have asked me 20 years ago, Richard, could you ever imagine this happening? Of course not. I was young and excited and hopeful and the economy is on a tear. Everything's going, how could it possibly get worse or get bad? When you experience a level of change or loss or frustration in a changing marketplace, that really the rubber hits the road. You get to be in a position uh, to understand that this is just not always the case. There's lots of ways to make money in real estate, tons of them. There's so many different methods that you can do it. But these things do change. And you have to recognize that change often comes when you least expect it and at the least level of your control. So your question about how does infinite banking help support me in real estate, I'll tell you one thing. When you set up the process of infinite banking, you go and get the type of insurance that we set up to do this. Really what you're getting is the equivalent of a long-term buy and hold piece of property. Why do you want long-term buy and hold property? A lot of people want it because you can get it paid for. You build equity. It creates cash flow. It can be a long-term passive income source for retirement or that future passive income time of your life. Agreed? You, you have leverage. If you needed to, you can access money, assuming that the lender will give it to you, to go and do something else with the money. These are all the reasons why people want long-term buy and hold real estate. Would you agree with all those statements? 100%. Okay. Every single one of those reasons on the list is exactly why you would want dividend-paying, participating whole life insurance built in a structured way to maximize the accumulative cash value which is an asset no different than equity in a house. The difference is if I want to go and access equity from one of my houses, first of all, I got to answer a bunch of stupid Mickey Mouse questions from a lender. I don't really like doing that. I'm not sure if you like doing that, but it's basically like a financial proctology exam from a lending institution. They want me to prove that I can, why I need their money. In the insurance environment, I don't have to do any of that. It's a phone call, one piece of paper, in fact, with one of the companies, you can now click a button online and you can get money direct deposit to your account within a couple of days. I have total control over the usage and liquidity of the collateral aspect of that equity on demand. Now, if I want to go and get a home equity line of credit or go get secondary lending from a, from, on a piece of property, they expect a payment, an interest-only payment or a, a fixed payment, and they make the rules, they set the rate, they make every rule. Okay, a banker makes the rules. When you're your own banker and you're working with the insurance company that you co-own, I co-own the lender. Everything that they do is to support me as an owner. All of their decisions are to support me. So if I pay a little bit of interest to them, I'm an owner with them. I want to support them doing a good job. The end result is I have an, a, what's called an unstructured loan arrangement. Unstructured is very simple. It means there's no fixed payment. There's no minimum interest payment. I control the payment. I'm the banker. I make the rules. Total and absolute control. No questions asked. So the level and the quality of asset class, although they have a lot of similarities, from a control standpoint, it's unmistakable you get a far greater level of control in this asset class. And from this base of financial operation, the asset of cash value insurance, I can accomplish every other financial objective I want. If I need to renovate a property, boom, policy loan. Pay contractor, renovations complete. Cash flow picks up, pay the loan back. If I used a personal line of credit, wouldn't I have to do the same thing? It's exactly the same. 
except my money kept growing the whole time in the contract. And the worst case scenario, the absolute worst case scenario, which by the way, is always the worst case scenario, is that Richard gets taken out by a city bus, an ETS transit bus. Yeah. That would be hard. I don't live in Edmonton anymore, but I do visit. So let's just assume that happened. And a whole boatload of tax-free money comes in and it solves all kinds of problems. If I have the insurance in place, that is true. If I don't have it, that's not true. So the worst case scenario is still the worst case scenario. But in one situation, tax-free money shows up to solve problems. In the other situation, it doesn't. And I want to tie in this one more time. My, my colleague, Jason Lowe, and he's the co-host of our podcast, Wealth Without Bay Street. One of the things that he is fond of saying is the best investment is the one that pays the most when you need it the most. I love that comparison between the two because those are the reasons why people get into real estate investing, right? Or the big ones, at least. I know you mentioned leverage. Can you leverage your whole life policy the way you can with real estate? From what I understand, at least with whole life, it's equity that you essentially access in, right? You're not accessing anything further than what you own or control. Is that correct? Yeah, really interesting question. I like the way you frame that. So I, I, here's how I'm going to tackle that. I, I got sparked by an idea. So you're right in that you can only access equity. So just like a piece of real estate, the only thing you can access is equity. Yeah. So there's no difference there. However, the level of equity that you can access in a typical piece of real estate is up to 80% loan to value. The value as determined by an appraiser. Everyone put your hand up if an appraiser's ever done a bad job of assessing the value of your property. <laughs> you're a much lower value than you think it's worth. <laughs> okay? So just understand, it's 80% of what an appraiser dictates that's on the registered list that the bank will take, yeah. not what the comp and what the reasonable market will bear necessarily. So understand that. So you're limited to 80%. Now, you can go higher than that if you use private financing. We understand that private financing can do that. But now you're adding extra risk into the property and you're also risking the investor's money because if the market drops, then that private investor is now potentially underwater on their investment. Does that make sense? By the way, I could tell you a whole bunch of horror stories about that going back to 2008, 2009. I don't think we have time for that today. Maybe that's a future, future endeavor. So we have limitations on our access to equity and we always have to go and ask permission. We have to get the money from someone else. You want the money? you got to go to someone's big fat pile of money. You're always tapping into someone's pile of money. It's either your pile or their pile, your pile or their pile. If you want to tap their pile, why do you go there? Well, it's because they have all the money. If they have all the money, they're not going to give it to you for free. They're going to charge fees and interest and structure payments and all this stuff for you to get access to it. You have to prove that you're a good borrowing risk. With the life insurance company, when you want to go and access money, boom, one piece of paper, one phone call. Money's direct deposited typically within five to, five to 10 business days, okay? Or you can get a check if you want, depending on the size of how much you're getting. You're directly accessing the equity, 90% of the equity, no questions asked. The minimum loan amount is usually 500 bucks, okay? So you have less than 500 to borrow. Sorry, you got to wait a few more months, okay? The equity accumulates every single day. In a piece of real estate, equity only goes up by a market condition, or the repayment of the debt. Those are the only two things that grow equity. We can agree on that. In an insurance contract, equity growth is automatic because of the design that's put into it. See, by we wrote a book on this, by the way. It's called Cash Follows the Leader, all right? 
how uninterrupted uninterrupted daily growth with high cash value insurance. We released this book as a bestseller. We didn't release it as a bestseller. It became a bestseller in December of 2022. In this book, we talk about the fundamentals of the contract that is property. We talk about property. We think of physical houses, physical buildings, but property is actually contracts, the law of contracts. So an insurance contract is a form of property, private property. And it's private in that it's between you and the insurance company. No one else knows about it. Now, when you set this up, if I put in whatever the amount is I use as the premium, that's going to buy me a certain amount of death benefit. So in your question, the idea of like leverage, can you put a certain amount in and get something more? Technically, yes. You put in a certain amount. Let's just say it's, I don't know, $10,000 as a premium and you're going to get $500,000 of death benefit. That sounds like leverage to me. Now, that death benefit's only good if you're dead. So it doesn't help you right now. But if you have a system where the cash is going to grow to equal the death benefit by age 100, and it must accumulate to reach that target, and it cannot be stopped by a market condition or a political environment, then now you've created constant compounding growth on your money. That's the environment that we operate in. So equity is growing every day by contract, not by market. So there's a big fundamental difference on that. What you can access of the equity is 90% of the cash value that's there. But when you take a policy loan, it's like a home equity line of credit, except there's no home, okay? It's the insurance contract is the method that's you being utilized. You now have an indebtedness with the insurance company. But I'm going to use a demonstration here. So I've got a water jug in my hand, a big, giant, like, two-liter water jug. I'm going to drink this whole thing today, if you can believe that. Big, giant water jug. And I've got a coffee mug here. So the water jug represents the general fund of the insurance company, okay? Big pool of money. Just a big, fat pool of money. The coffee mug here, which is a very good coffee, by the way, is representing the cash value of my contract, okay? This is how much cash value I have. When I request a policy loan, where does the money come from? Which jug? Well, if it's uninterrupted, then I'm guessing it comes from the water. Bingo, you nailed it. The money comes from the insurance company. So I'm using the insurance company's money OPM, other people's money, to be able to utilize, my money is completely untouched. It never leaves the account. It doesn't come out of the coffee mug, which means it is constantly growing uninterrupted. That's very powerful. It's very similar to taking a home equity line on a house. You don't have to sell the house, okay? But one of the problems with home equity lines is they're an on-demand loan. And if you go back to 2008, 2009 and the financial crisis and the meltdown that happened there, a lot of people, it did happen in Canada, much more prevalent in the States, people that had these big home equity lines of credit, because the real estate market started to tank, they were frozen and then turned into blended principal and interest payments much higher than what they were previously paying. And it forced people into bankruptcies. So the bank can giveth and the bank can taketh away. Yeah. When you're your own bank, you make the rules. You're in control. You're in the driver's seat. That's what we try to focus on teaching people what to do. Nobody should ever be in control of your money but you. You're the only one that should be in the driver's seat. That's our focus. That's what we're trying to teach people to do by implementing the mindset and the concepts that Nelson Nash taught us and then making sure people understand how to implement that through practice. It's a lot about coaching and ongoing coaching and ongoing learning. Nelson says in the book that there's no such thing as having arrived in knowledge. There's always something new to learn. And that's part of where your podcast comes in. People listening into this have an opportunity to be exposed to lots of additional learning and ideas and the experiences 
of other people, real estate professionals and investors that have had the good wins and the bads, and they are able to share their stories. That's how we learn is through stories. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so a question for people out there who are trying to figure out with regards to whole life policies and real estate investing, can it be tied together? Is it a either or vehicle or a combination of both? Or is there a situation where you can tie them together to, to get the best of both? And how does that look like theoretically? Yeah, it's a very good question. And so actually my colleague, Jason co-wrote a book, the and asset for Canadians. So we refer to the insurance contract as an and asset. Everything else that you do in your financial life is generally this or that decision. I could put money in my RRSP or I can use it as a down payment on real estate. I can fund the basement suite renovation on this property or I can put it in my TFSA or I can buy a family car or I can go on vacation. You're always making a this or that decision. With the insurance, you're no longer doing that. You're making, I have the insurance. I have constant motion on money. I have protection for the family, whichever the family member is. I have a certainty and a guaranteed outcome that's being created no matter what, simply by going to bed and waking up the next day. I have an automatic improvement to my financial condition. And I can access money to go do everything I was going to do anyway. If I needed to renovate the house, boom, there's the money. If I needed to go on family vacation, boom, I was going to spend the money. Where did the money come from? It came from the insurance company's money. I needed to go down payment on a piece of real estate, borrow money from here, put it there. I needed to go and fund a flip deal, borrow the money, put it there. So the same way that you might use a home equity line of credit, especially for your investing purposes, is identical to how you would use it here. You just have more control over it and you have a more certainty on your outcomes by doing it that way. So ultimately, it's really not very complicated. It's basically, you need to put money somewhere. Money has to be warehoused. So you either need it in a savings account or a checking account or maybe some home equity or whatever. You need to warehouse money. And when you warehouse money, every once in a while, it comes out of the warehouse to go to work. I'll give you an example. Most people in Edmonton have a garage if they can. They want to have a garage because a couple months of the year, it's not very friendly outside. I know I'm very familiar with that. And so when you park in your garage, every day you got to go to the store to work, to check on your properties, whatever. You got to leave the house. When you come back to your house, don't you put the car back in the garage? Yeah. Okay. That's a warehouse. That's a warehouse for your car. Your car is just a tool. It allows you to go from here to there and here to there. It's a transactional transportation device. Money is a transactional transportation device. The movement of money is what banking is. Money has to move from one party to another in a relatively short period of time. That's the function of banking. When you can control that function at the you and me level with more autonomy and control using private contract, all you're doing is you're changing the warehouse. Instead of it being in a checking account, savings account, TFSA, RSP, home equity, you're transferring the warehouse of the money to the insurance company that you co-own, which pays you dividends every year and gives you a whole bunch of other benefits. And when you need the money, you take it out of the warehouse and you go and put it to work. It's very simple. It's all it is to it. So infinite banking isn't an investment. It never is. It's not. And then whole life insurance is not an investment. It's a really good warehouse for capital that's efficient, that allows you to deploy it on demand for the exact same things you're doing every day. I love that. I love that explanation. The way I see it is that you sort of disrupting your previous flow of money 
in a manner that allows you to keep as much of your money as possible, right? Basically plugging up as much of that leak as you possibly can. I can give you an example of that if you want. Please go for it. So I have a number of these insurance contracts, of course, on, on my own life, on my wife and my two children. I'm going to be getting another one here in the next few months. I just haven't had time to complete the application. But I got a new one on my wife last January, about a year ago, and I got two new ones on my kids. And so I have, a, I have an operating company and I have a holding company, as a lot of real estate investors do. And so I, this particular policy is owned by the holding company. Now, like most people, I have to pay CRA a tax bill every year. Have you ever had that experience, all right? Okay. You, would you believe it? They have no sense of humor about it all. They won't accept shingles and doors and drywall. <laughs> They'll only take Canadian currency. Knowing that I have to pay them, I set money aside on a regular basis to pay that bill. Okay, that's, I have to warehouse that money, don't I? Someplace. So what I do is I said, look, I want to optimize this capital so it can work for my family more generations than it was going to work for the Canada Revenue Agency. So I took the amount of money that I expected my tax bill to be for my corporation. It was about $35,000. And I said, look, I'm going to commit that to a new policy. And I'm going to, I needed one on my wife anyway. I knew one on my wife anyway. I converted some term insurance into a new contract. I made the choice. I decided the premium. I set it all up. 35000 is what I wanted to put into it. Were you with me so far? And the minimum required premium, I'm just going to round it. It's different than that, but it was about 10000 bucks. It was like ninety five, but let's just call it 10000 So 10000 was the minimum requirement. 25000 was totally optional, totally flexible, 100% in my control. You with me so far? Okay. It'd be like you have to make a minimum mortgage payment, but you could make extra payments on the loan if you wanted to. Same kind of an idea. When I make that extra payment into the policy at my choice, it automatically increases the death benefit roughly, in this case of my wife, four to five times greater than what it was before I made the payment. So I have a huge increase, which now causes an effect of long-term compounding to occur, okay? Because the death the cash value is chasing after this future death benefit. It must reach that death benefit by age 100. So I just forced the cash to start moving faster and accumulating for my family. Now, I was able to access a policy loan within about five days from setting that policy up. And I borrowed, I believe it was $22,000 right away. So I put 35 in and I was able to access 22,000. Is that all of my money? Of course not. But it's a pretty good chunk, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I was going to pay the Canadian government 35 anyway. I had extra money set aside to pay the balance, but 22 grand of it I used to pay the bill, and then I had extra money in my corporation to pay the remaining balance. You with me so far? Okay. The key thing is this. The original 35 I had set aside that was happily going to go to CRA and gone forever, now I've optimized that money. I've created another asset. I've already created equity. I've increased the total death benefit for protecting my wife and my children and my future fam my family now for generations to come. And I've optimized that capital to do more jobs for me for more time before seeing it disappear, never to be used again. So the opportunity cost on that tax bill is extremely high. I've harnessed that opportunity cost to work for our family before it ever left the door. That's about efficiency and flow of money has nothing to do with an investment, it has to do with control. And I'm just thinking now, the money that you take out, of course, there's interest on that gets charged. What's correct? Generally, I'm sure it differs, but what would that difference 
look like between the interest that you earn versus the interest that you'd be paying? Good question. There's a little bit more to that question. So I'll try to simplify it and unpack it while still being accurate. So the life insurance company determines the interest rate on policy loans. The life insurance company is required to put money to work for the benefit of the owners. They must do that. It's a requirement. One of the places they can put the money to work is bonds and corporate bonds and buying and buying investment, real estate, large commercial buildings and centers, lending money on commercial and private mortgages. They do the very same thing that banks do. They just don't manipulate the money supply the way that banks do. Okay. We won't go down that rabbit hole today. But so one of the places they can put the money to work and the place that's at the top of the tier, like VIP is with the policy owner. So if the policy owner wants to use that money, it must be lent to them before anyone else. Does that make sense? So the reason that you're charged interest on that, it's not because you're borrowing your money. It's not yours. It's the insurance company's money. And we're all operating together in one profitable pool. So you want to pay interest to them because that goes to support long-term dividends you receive as an owner in the company on an annual basis. All right. So when I take a policy loan, currently with the one company that I was speaking about one is policy, it's 6.2%. Now that is a simple interest calculation and it only compounds one time per year on the anniversary date of the policy. So if I sent zero payments back, I bought $10,000, I sent zero payments back for 365 days, the new loan would be 10,620 bucks. Make sense? Okay, very simple. And unlike most loans that compound monthly or semi-annually on mortgages, there's a different structure to the calculation of the loan, if that makes sense. And when I send payments back, they go directly to whatever the principal balance is. So while I have the loan outstanding, the insurance company is still growing my money. So the net effect is that my interest rate, my effective interest rate is actually lower because I've had increase on this side to counteract some of the interest payment on this side, if that makes sense. So to say that you, you know, a lot of people will say you get all your interest back. That's not actually true. You don't get the interest back that you pay the life company. What you get back is the equivalency of growth that could be the same equivalent value of that interest over time. So it appears that way, but that's it's not really an accurate way of stating what, what happens. So I'm not sure if I complicated or simplified that scenario, but the reality is that those rates do change from time to time. And the insurance company elects to change those rates based on what's the benefit for the policy owners as an aggregate whole when it comes to managing the business of the insurance company, which you co-own. So I'm taking money from a lender that I co-own and they support me by sharing the divisible surplus on an annual basis relative to the size of my plan. It makes complete sense, right? You essentially own in the bank that you lend in from and you receive in part of the profit that the bank makes. My one question that I do have, because one of the, one of the ways that you said real estate investors can go about utilizing this is for fix and flips, for renovations, as well as for down payments. Now, if they were to be using it for a down payment over time, would it still then make sense that they put that in a whole life policy, take it out for a down payment, as opposed to putting it directly in as the down payment with regards to the whole explanation that you broke down? Would it still make more sense to have it in that whole life policy over 20 years? Yeah. I mean, it, there is going to be some situational specific aspects because sometimes it has to do with deal flow. Certain deal lands on your desk and you have to move quick on a deal. You may have to make a different decision. But fundamentally, if the mindset is 
I can do more with a dollar and I can optimize a dollar to work for more than my own lifespan. And there's only one way to do that. Logic would tell you that you probably want to get it into the policy first. If that's something you want to do. If you don't want to do that's perfectly okay. It's fine. But you can't say that you learned about this and knew it was possible. And then 30 years later say, boy, I wish I would have done that. Okay. When's the best time to plant a tree? 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. The second best time is today, right? There's no harm in educating yourself about something to see if it's the right fit. And not everything is the right fit. And not everything is the right fit at this time. Okay. So sometimes people just aren't ready to take this on. And that's okay. We have people come back to us five years later and be like, wow, I really wish I would have got started. I'm like, okay, no problem. Just get started now. I literally was on the phone with a guy yesterday who applied seven years ago because he was, I don't know, he was smoking pot or something at that time before it was legal. It was causing an issue with the application. And then he just set it to the wayside. And he told me yesterday, I wish I had those seven years back. I'm like, okay, you can't say that seven years from now. You have to get started. And the key thing here to understand is that money has got to flow. Blood's got to flow. If blood doesn't pump through your system, we could talk about you in the past tense. All right? Water's got to flow. We have 80% of the earth is made out of water. That water evaporates. It goes into the cloud. It shifts around the earth. It comes down to rain. It goes to the rivers. You and I got to drink some water. If we don't drink water, we're going to be dead. Would you agree? Okay. That water's going to run through us and it's going to go back into the greater system. It's all connected. It's an ecosystem. Water's got to flow. Blood's got to flow. Money's got to flow. And if it's flowing through your life right now, how much of that flow as it runs through your life are you connecting with and optimizing in a system that allows it to continue beyond your own lifespan through the power of life insurance, which is very powerful, so that you could do more with the dollar? All we're talking about is money flow, harnessing as much of it as we can before it goes to the car guy, the mortgage guy, the tax guy, and everyone else. It's going to walk out the door anyway. We might as well harness some of it before it's gone. That's all there is to it. It's just very simple. And I can tell you this. I was on a call today with a real estate investor in Ontario, actually. Super nice lady. She just told me that her husband, her, his mother just passed away in the last few days. And two months ago, his brother passed away. So two deaths in the family in a short period of time. This guy's 45. She's 46. They're still very young. They have three children. They've got multiple rental properties. They're all in Ontario where there's rent control. She bought them seven years ago. She's had a huge equity increase, but her cash flow is now flipping negative because of the interest rate environment. So she's very equity rich and she's cash poor. How much insurance do they have? Not very much. Just found out the husband now has high blood pressure and he, they just found out he might have an irregular heartbeat. So he's got to go in for testing. What's the probability, low, medium, or high, we're going to get more insurance on him? It went down to the lower category. Now, we talked about this six months ago, and we didn't know about that information. We had a much higher probability of getting him insured six months ago than we do yeah. today. Now she's calling to get the insurance. Hopefully, we can make that happen. He's the primary income earner in the family with a day job. If something happens to him, they don't have enough coverage to pay off the mortgages and the loans so that she can create the cash flow income that she yeah. needs. To say that the insurance isn't valuable is completely insane. You're required to have insurance on your car just to drive on the road to protect other people, but you're not required to have the one thing that's fundamentally known in life, which is your death. And you're not required to have insurance to protect your own damn family. That is so ridiculously insane. The fact that people think that's a bad idea 
I literally would jump through the phone and punch someone in the face for saying something so stupid. Nobody is more important than your family. Nobody. And if you're not going to protect them, what does that say about you? Sorry. Soapbox <laughs> moment. Can't help myself. All right. I 100% agree. I do have a question though. Of course, the best time to start, right? 20 years ago, second best time is today. Is there a minimum? So let's say someone that's beginning this grind of, I want to get into real estate investing so that I can build some wealth, so that I can build some cash flow, increase my, my income that I have coming in and start my journey towards generational wealth. At what point, what's the minimum or the best point for them to start? Because the best point is to start is as early as possible, right? But of course, there's some financial minimums there. What would that look like? So very good question. And most people, when they think about insurance, they think about the death benefit number. That's not how we look at things. We look at things from the premium number. What's the outlay? What's the cash flow that you're working with? How can we put that cash flow to work in good usage? Because we can create immediate access to money, you're not saying goodbye to all that cash flow. There's a good amount of liquidity that you can work with on a, on a reasonably short basis. So for a lot of people, we help them understand how to recapture things like third-party debts, credit cards. You spend money on courses and stuff to learn about real estate. You build up some credit card debt, right? Those things, lines of credits, vehicles. We recover that cash flow that's walking out the door and we redirect it back to the policy as soon as it's recovered. So it's all about money flow. It's all about money flow. Because we can work through those things with people from a coaching standpoint, often we're able to show them the money that's flowing through their hands. There's more to work with than what they can see themselves, okay? And Nelson talks about that in, in his book. As far as like a minimum is concerned, here's the thing I will say. You need to have positive cash flow. If you have less money left over at the end of the month than what's coming in, it's going to be difficult to set something up. It may be that you have less than you think because of the way it's running through your life. I'll give you an example. I had a lady who owns a marketing business in Calgary. She does marketing for some mortgage brokers and realtors and stuff like that. Very good. She's super awesome at it. And she has a lot of money on softwares for her marketing business. She was spending, I think it was 20, I don't know, like $2,500 a month on these different software tools. I had her go and check in with all, through some coaching. I said, go find out with each one of these softwares. If you transfer from monthly to annually, what's the discount you're going to get? What's the new cost? She went and did the homework. She also found out she could take four tools and smash them into one new tool and make a transition. She came back and she saved $1,500 a month by making that change. So she had no $1,500 a month. The money was going to someone else was getting all of her money. We changed her mindset, her way of thinking about the flow of the money. And now we can harness that $1,500 a month into building a system of sustainability for her. And she can borrow from it every year and she can pay off the annual for all these things. And she's harnessing the same flow of money that used to walk out the door. Is she working any harder? No. Is she improving her financial condition? Yes. Does she have more protection that she didn't have before? Yes. All things improved in her life by making one decision differently. She thought she had no money. She wasn't looking at the money the right way. So just because you don't think you have any money doesn't mean that's true. It means you're not prioritizing the usage of the money properly. And you might need a really good coach that can see something you can't see. That's the difference. That's a very, very valid point. I think most people overlook that factor and, and where the money flows after they, they get it, right? A lot of people don't want to take the time to actually uh, audit themselves, right? And if you do, you can definitely find 
more efficient way to be using your money. We have people that get started for as little as $100 a month on their children, generally do as little as about $500 a month for most adults, okay? Can it be done for less? It can. Is there some economy of scale as you go bigger? There is. It's like Costco. You get a bulk discount when you buy your goods. There's certain degrees of that exist in the insurance realm, which we teach people about. So there, there makes sense to be able to go for some higher targets. But as you grow, you just continue to build onto it. My very first policy was $4,219 a year. And at the time that I got it, I can tell you, I didn't have any money already. I didn't because I was brand new in the real estate business. I'd left a $160,000 a year electrical career where I was contracting, making really good money. I bought a house that was at the peak of the market in 2007 that I still can't sell for what it's worth today. So there's another real estate story when I need to go and do. And a lot of things had happened and I transitioned into a, basically a third business in the span of a year. So I, I didn't really have a lot of money, but I wasn't going to do this and teach people about it if I wasn't all in, if I didn't have skin in the game. How on earth could I go and teach someone to do this if I myself am not doing it? I had to be the first one to get started. That's the biggest my brain could fathom I could do at that time. Two years later, I got another one. And six months after that, I got another one. And then a year after that, I got another one. And so I just kept adding and adding onto my system to the point where now I'm still looking to continually add to my system because I need to warehouse more capital. Okay. It's no different than looking at how you're going to go buy the next real estate deal. It's the same idea. I just want, instead of the real estate that has tenants and walls and roofs and rental boards and rental managers and all this other stuff, I just want to keep it dead simple. And when the great opportunity comes up for me, I can access liquid capital. Boom, I can put it to work in a very short period of time. In fact, I just did that. I just took, I don't know, $90,000 worth of policy loans for my whole co. And I literally just combined that with a little bit of other capital I had together. And I'm making an investment in a business structure that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own. It's already a profitable business. I know the business model extremely well. I know the trajectory of the business. And so I'm making a good decision based on things that I absolutely know where I can invest in a structure that I believe will be very profitable. It's not a real estate deal, but it's no different than taking that money and buying a good piece of real estate when the right deal shows up. In order for, here's one thing that Nelson used to say. I'll share this. Opportunities come to those who are well capitalized. So, the, the, you know, does having money safe and available take away any of your options? Of course not. It enhances your options. So when you have access to capital, opportunities begin to hunt you down. The more capital you have, it attracts higher caliber deals because your brain can see the deal that wasn't there before. And when you fine tune your deal radar, as they start to cross your desk, you're able to eliminate some of the junky stuff that you would have jumped on when you were just getting started because you are, you, your radar is tightened up like, oh, nope, not that deal, not that deal, not that. Boom, there's the one. And when you have the capital available, you can pounce on it like a tiger. That's what we're teaching people how to do by being more mindful of the flow of money as it goes through their hands. Phenomenal. Honestly, it is. Um, so what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about infinite banking? If you could perhaps clear some of those up for the audience. One of the common misconceptions is that, the, that this is an investment. It's not. Infinite banking isn't an investment. It's something that you do. It's a lifestyle. Whole life insurance isn't an investment. It's just a tool. It's just a vehicle. To think that it's that is just completely false. It's misleading. 
investments are just investments. <laughs> okay. Nelson used to say that an investment is only in something you know a great deal about. Everything else is speculation. So in my opinion, that's the right definition for what an investment is. Another misconception would be that you have to put money away and build it up for five or seven years before you can get started. That is also not true. You can get started right away. And another misconception is that you have to be wealthy or make a lot of money to get started in this process. That is also a misconception. In fact, Nelson built his book based on the idea of a, his all-American average young man, 30 years old, making $30,000 a year. That's what his book is based off of to get people to understand that you don't have to be rich to get into the banking business. Is it better if you have more money? Sure. But you start where you start. Okay. Just like I did. No different. And as you begin to do this process, you begin to see more. I think another misconception is that a lot of people think that maybe they're too old to get started. And that's definitely not true because are you too old to have a bank account? Do you need money today? If you need money today, realistically, you're not too old to become your own banker. I don't know anyone who is old, older or elderly that isn't using money. Now, does it mean that they need to be the insured person? No. So that's another misconception that you need to be the one who's insured. No, you just need an insurable body. We need to demonstrate to the life company that you have a reasonable interest in getting a, insurance on that person. So rule of thumb is spouse, children, grandchildren, parents, business partners. If you're in real estate, you're doing joint venture partners. That's a perfect reason to go get an insurance policy on that individual. Because if something happens to your joint venture partner, isn't that going to create some problems? Don't you want the money to buy out the partner's spouse? So there's a thing in business and in real estate, especially in real estate projects, called buy-sell arrangements. One of the things that we haven't talked about, which I think is a really good thing to bring up, El Ray, is that when you understand the power of how insurance can operate in a business structure, you can create way more advantages for the people that you're doing business with. And in a difficult environment, especially a difficult real estate buying environment, you need every single edge that you can get to stand out from the crowd when you're trying to seek investment dollars, right? Who wants to part with their money right now while everything, inflation's up and everybody's worried about what's going on in the world and the economy? People are holding on to their money tightly because they're not sure what's going on. They don't have safety and security, okay? If you could provide safety and security, you might be able to market better for investment capital. If you say, hey, look, if you join my joint venture, I've got this boatload of insurance in place that's gonna protect you and I'll write you in as a beneficiary or we'll have a corporation. The corporation will own it and we'll have that make sure that the money shows up in the event something happens to me so that you can buy out my, like you can set up these kind of structures to give people peace of mind to protect their investment. Nobody's thinking about that. And I don't understand why, because it's so simple and it's so easy for peanuts, for pennies on the dollar, you can solve massive financial problems with the advantage of insurance. So Nelson Nash, when he discovered this in the early 80s, it was a period of rapidly increasing inflation, rapidly increasing interest rates. He was on his knees praying at the financial condition he had put himself in because of real estate and being over leveraged. We talk about leverage in real estate and how wonderful it is. Nobody talks about what happens when the lever goes the other way. That's what happened to Nelson. And it's happening today for real estate investors all across this great country, all over the place. I speak to them every day, by the way. I speak to real estate all over the nation and they are getting squeezed on cash flow right now. It is brutal, especially if you're in a rent controlled environment, which thankfully Alberta doesn't have that problem. 
So when the lever goes the other way, none of the gurus talk about that. And then the gurus disappear and you don't hear from them until real estate's good again. Isn't that weird? That's really weird. And so Nelson, in the early 80s, all this stuff happens to him. He talks about it in the book. He had a $500,000 open line of credit on, on 90 day terms that he had on land development. He was doing land development projects. And when interest rates spiked, he was paying prime plus one and a half. That went up to 23 and a half percent interest for him. Think about that 500 grand, 23 and a half percent interest. That's a massive interest only payment. Then a big name lawyer in the town of Birmingham, Alabama, bankrupted on a project that they were doing. And they thought, oh, he's going to be a good partner. He's a lawyer. He'll be a good partner for us. He bankrupted. Nelson's share of the deal was an extra 300 grand. $800,000, 23% interest. Does that sound like a fun way to do things? That's in 1982. That's a long time ago. Adjust that for inflation. We're talking about $2.5 million effectively. That's the position he was in. Okay, so he wasn't a small time real estate player at that time of the game. And he realized a way to solve his problem was right in front of him. It was through the whole life insurance he already had. The problem was he hadn't been putting enough money in there. He could get to money at seven, eight and 10 percent at three different insurance companies, but he couldn't access enough because he hadn't put enough in. He was thinking the way everyone else was. He had to change his thinking. He had to readjust his mindset and his budget and reprioritize and laser focused on capitalizing so that he could buy back the debt from the snakes and the dragons. It took him 13 years to fire his bankers, 13 years. From that point in time, him and his wife, Mary, never saw a traditional bank again, other than the convenience of a debit card. His family, they finance cars, mortgages in the family. When Nelson passed away four years ago, I miss him dearly. Bless his soul. It was amazing, man. I miss him. He, 17 death benefit checks were paid. So think about this. Just imagine this. You had property, 17 rental properties. When you pass away, they transfer 100% tax-free and automatically sell for their highest appraised value with no real estate fees. And they bypass probate. And that happens on the day of your death. Just imagine that for a moment. That's what happened for Nelson, except it wasn't property. It was insurance contracts. Now, your portfolio is bigger. You have 28 other pieces of cash flowing real estate fully paid for. And they transfer tax-free to your family as well with no consequence. That's what happened for Nelson. 17 death benefit checks were paid. 28 policies that are still in force on other people members of his family, children, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, three business, ex-business partners in the real estate game, by the way. All of these policies transfer down to the next generation with no tax consequence. They're still generating and growing cash every day. There will be a death benefit paid on every one of them. And he's created a cascade effect of multi-generational wealth that didn't even require the real estate. That's the power of what we're talking about. This isn't an insurance policy. This is a lifestyle. This is generational wealth in a way that cannot be matched by anything else, but gets enhanced dramatically when you're also investing in real estate. What are some of the, the, the key factors that you're considering when deciding, hey, I have some money, I'm going to put it in one policy, or you know what, I'll actually open up another policy and put that money in there. How do you evaluate that? 
That's a super good question. And a lot of that takes place when you're working with a coach. So we, our whole team at Ascendant Financial, we're authorized infinite banking practitioners. We've gone through an authorization program developed by the Nelson Nash Institute. And the fact that I just became one of the, the first honorary members of a practitioner, basically oversight group with the Nelson Nash Institute, which is really wonderful, a great honor. And so we, you work one-on-one -on -one with a coach and you talk through cash flow and what's going on. And we spend a lot of our time educating about the book. We have an online membership portal for our clients. We do quarterly group client coaching. In fact, we're doing one of those this Saturday. And we put on a lot of events. In fact, we're doing a lot of live events. We've got one in Vancouver coming in a couple of weeks and then in Toronto. And then we'll probably be back in Edmonton in October of this year. What we, so a lot of it comes through the ongoing education and discovery. And you just get hit with a, with, you just understand all of a sudden it hits you like, oh, wow, if I took this, windfall of money or this, if I change this in my budget, that would create the income I needed for this other, that would create the funding source for this next policy. So sometimes it's uncertain and then your brain just makes the connection, just the way that you discover things in life. Like it just, you just make a connection on it. A lot of it just comes through coaching and working one-on-one -on -one with a coach and talking through what that would look like. And so there's a natural progression that happens. And so what we find is very common for our clients, they get started wherever they're at. Typically within 24 to 30, 36 months, they're opening up another policy. And it's because they've recaptured third-party debt. Maybe they've had a windfall event. They've restructured their finances. They've had a lot of wins by using the policy as working capital in their life. And it's changed the way they operate their day-to-day -day budget. And then they become aware of how they can find the funding source for another one. So there's a lot of natural gravitation that happens because of the psychology of money. It's not like a clear cut path for everyone. It's we all run a different financial life. My financial junk drawer is going to be different than yours. So when you unpack that junk drawer and you start to put the pieces together, it's amazing the things that you can see and a coach can help you see it. So that's where it happens. In other words, very, it's not always consistent and it varies from person to person. For me, what works really well for me is I have like any, anything that we do in life, we need to have goals and targets. The more that we really focus on achieving these goals and we get clear on what they are and we have a good picture in our mind, the more likely that it is you're going to achieve them. There's no such thing as an unreasonable goal, only an unreasonable timeline, if that makes sense. For me, I have a goal that I want to get more policies. I want to get more of my financial energy into insurance premium because it builds up and it allows me to tap into a larger and ever-expanding resource. I understand I'm going to have a little bit of liquidity issue for a short period of time, but as I have existing policies that are doing very well and I'm opening up new ones, those new ones are going to become very well. It just kind of builds and builds and builds on itself. Because I have a focused mind on that, it's very, I don't say it's very easy, but it becomes easier to discover when it makes sense to open a new one. I always want to open a new one. So I'm just looking for a reason to do it. And then with all your existing ones, are you just paying the minimum premium at that point? Or do you have a set amount that you're paying above that to increase your, for lack of a better term, equity that you have within that policy a whole lot quicker than just uh, the interest that it grows at? That's correct. So every policy has like a floor and a ceiling. And you, you're required to pay the floor amount or the minimum required amount. What's nice about most of the companies that we work with in general, broad terms, 
the minimum premium, again, if you're doing it monthly or annually, annually is always best, by the way. With a flexible portion, the optional amount that you can put over and above that, whatever the ceiling is, the cap, you can choose when to put that in throughout the year. So if you have varied cash flows, like as an example, you're a realtor and you have summer months where you make a lot more revenue because that's the sales season, where you could take the money as it comes in and you could smash it into policies right away. All right. I have an income that's up and down because I'm in a similar type of environment. So I do the same thing. If you're doing flip deals, you might have a lot of money that goes into a flip. And then all of a sudden, finally, six months later, you sell the flip and you have a big return where you could take that money and you could smash it into a policy right away. And anything that's left over can go towards the policy loans. And then you're waiting to fund the next deal. So that's another good environment where we see people doing this. Tax refunds, any of these other types of events. So you can find ways to get money into a policy very quickly and then have a very good amount of liquidity to put that back into a working area of your life. So there's a lot of capacity to flow money through, be able to utilize as long as you have the mindset that you're also trying to return it. Okay, so money came out of the garage. You want to make sure you get it back into the garage. And we spend a lot of time helping people understand why and how that works. And that ceiling with regards to your own policies, have you gotten to the point where you've already hit those ceilings on specific policies and you're like, okay, this is done. Not touching that unless I need to take money out, of course, onto the next policy. Yeah, so the ceiling is an annual allotment. So you want to try and hit the ceiling every year if you can. If you can't, it is what it is, but you want to hit the ceiling every year. And you want to at least make sure you're doing that for the first, say, five to seven years because the early years set up the future of the policy. It's creating that buildup that you need to make it very efficient on the back end. And as you build these up, it doesn't take very long, maybe a couple of short years, where every time you put a dollar in, you're getting a dollar five back. You put a dollar in, you get a dollar ten back. If you're putting a dollar in, you can get a dollar ten back every year. How big do you want the first dollar to be? Little or a lot? Does that make sense? So scale has an impact there. And if you have a machine that every time you put a dollar in, you know for a fact it's going to give you more than dollar ten back, would there be any reason to not put the dollar in? Oh, absolutely not. But here's a question for you, and I think I know the answer, but you know, maybe people out there have a similar question is, let's say I have $5,000 that I can put to this. Is it better for me to put the $5,000 now or wait a little longer, put a little bigger upfront, or just put the small amount in now and run with it? Very good question. Here's the way I'll answer that. <clears throat> Nobody knows how many tomorrows you have left. And the only way to insure your tomorrows is with insurance. And the only way to lock it in is to do it sooner than later. And I told you the story about that, that the fella who's got some high blood pressure, some heart issues, and he may be uninsurable. Six months ago, we probably wouldn't have had that problem, 45 years old. I've had children denied insurance for a variety of reasons, behavioral issues, any number of issues. The earliest you can insure a child, by the way, is 16 days of age. So don't ever wait to get insurance in place on someone that you love. It's not reasonable to do that. I started with 4,200 bucks and then I had another one. It was 200 bucks a month. And then I had another one that was $6,000 a year. And then I had another one that was 300 bucks a month. And I just kept adding and adding. And eventually they got bigger and bigger. So now I'm a little bit more, more intentional about the amount that I want to contribute to a, a plan. And I might wait for a little bit bigger at my stage because I'm looking to do something very specific. But I also already have 
more than 10 years of history behind my belt. So it's okay for me to do that. But if I'm just getting started, I would just get started personally. That's my take on it. That's a really valid point is you already have behind your name, whereas someone may not have any, any life insurance. So yeah, get started now because tomorrow is uncertain. Go ahead. Tomorrow's uncertain. And one thing that goes into that from what we talked about earlier, just going back to Nelson, talking about age and whatever, when Nelson first discovered this, he was already in his early fifties. So yes, he'd had some insurance that he built up prior to that, but he didn't really actively get going and getting started until that point in time. He had quadruple bypass surgery, heart surgery, I believe in like 1987 or 88. So only a short number of years after we really figured this out, he got into a position where he was uninsurable. So thankfully he is, he was still accumulating death benefit every day because of the structure of the policies. And he was able to have other bodies he could insure. He insured five business partners. During that time frame, he had two death claims when he insured business partners. These were all real estate business partners, by the way, larger land development type projects. And his business partners didn't insure Nelson, but he knew the value of it. So he insured them. He's like, that's a body. I can insure that body. I, that's a place I can put money and then I can borrow from that place to go pay off the snakes and dragons. Well, those two death claims he had, they amassed to, I believe about $250,000. And that was on one, just on one of those policies, he had put $47,000 in premium over a number of years, but he'd had an outstanding policy loan of 48,000. So he had all his money out. It was a net zero deal. And then he received an additional $205,000 tax-free. Did he do okay on that deal? And when the guy died, their business partnership had ended. He didn't know that guy. He didn't see him socially. He might've seen him on the street once in a while and just waved at him. It'd been five or six or seven years. The guy dropped dead in the doctor's office waiting room, waiting to go get checked out for a heart condition. And so again, it's just a circumstance that because of some foresight, he didn't buy the policy for death benefit. He bought it as a place to deposit money. He used the money that he put in there. And he had the advantage of a death benefit. So he was able to do all of those things. And he didn't expect those death claims, but he said, didn't that cancel out a lot of mistakes I made in life? Now, people are like, hey, I'm, I think I've heard enough. I just want to go ahead and take action before this just becomes another thing that I've seen and went in one side and out the other. What can they do? How can they go ahead and get this in place? So the very first step is very simple, is you want to go to sevensteps.ca. That's sevensteps.ca. We have a great free report that's there that walks through literally a seven-step learning process to really determine if this is the right fit for you. It'll give you all the direct guidance on the types of things you need to do, which includes getting a copy and reading the book, Becoming Your Own Banker. I think that's great. Obviously, our podcast, Wealth Without Bay Street, is a great resource. We talk about this. We, we have a client series of interviews where we've interviewed a number of real estate investors who use this in their life. That's a really good res resource. And I think we have two books of our own available, Canadian's Guide to Wealth Building Without Risk and Cash Follows the Leader, which is really popular. They're very simple and easy to read. You can get them on Amazon. But the sevensteps.ca, that report will really guide you on exactly what you need to do to determine, is this even something I should explore further? And we put it all together in a nice little package there. And uh, we'd love to see what we can do to help people, especially in the real estate community. Perfect. I tell you what, I'll make sure to leave the links to all of that down below. 
so people can reach out to you and uh, people want to follow along your journey, maybe join in on your podcast and get some more information there. I'll leave all that information in the description below. We dived in pretty deep and you've given some great explanations about it and the benefits that it entails. So I'm excited for people to hear this one. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, El Rey. And again, I appreciate what you're doing, helping provide good value and education for the people that listen to the program. You're being a tremendous resource to others and you may not know it, but you're showing up in a way that people really need by putting a podcast. It's not easy to do this type of work and there's a lot that goes into it, which I understand. And so I appreciate all the effort that you're putting forth to, to get this kind of information to the people. Thank you for tuning in to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. If you're interested in learning how you can effectively manage your rental portfolio, then you definitely want to check out the episode where I interview Mason. This is your host, Alray Noble, signing off.